to you this morning. Let's get our Bibles out. Open to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, page 1281 in the Pew Bible in front of you. So if you came and you don't have a copy of God's Word, just grab that black hardbound Bible there in the pew in front of you and turn to page 1281. You'll find Acts 20. That's where we left off a couple weeks ago. And uh, last week, I'm grateful for uh, Brother Gene and the message that he preached, the whole gospel. My goodness, I was so encouraged when I uh, heard that sermon and thought what a uh, great bridge it was between these two messages that go together in this passage from Acts 20. So as you were here last Sunday, uh, sitting in worship and worshiping God, me and Pastor Matt were worshiping God in a very different way. We spent all day Saturday in a pastor's conference in Chicago, and then I found out I had a funeral to do Tuesday morning, and so we needed to get back. And here we are in the busiest airport in the United States of America, so it ought to be very simple to get on an airplane and get to New Orleans or Gulfport, one would think. But contrary to what would make sense, that's not the case. And uh, apparently, if you want to get somewhere, if you want to go south, you have to fly north, east, west before you can even get south. So finally, we threw our hands up in the air, got in the rental car, and started driving home. Now, that's a seven-state journey, okay? And I love Pastor Matt. (laughs) But uh, my intention wasn't to die with him. So there we are, I don't even know, at some point in the middle of the night, in the dark, careening across. Do y'all realize how much stinking corn you eat? There is corn, you could drive half your life and never see anything but a stalk of corn. Not another living person. Who eats all that corn? Anyway, there we are coming across, you know, there's no hill there's no, there's nothing, just corn, just picture corn, that's all you got. And then suddenly I'm driving along and here comes these clouds. Now, you know, we have hurricanes, I mean, you know, I'm used to seeing big, ominous, scary clouds, but this is a whole nother dimension. And as I see this wall of blackness coming towards us and I'm in this little goofy rental car, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm thinking, man, this doesn't look good, and stuff's blowing around, and, you know, it's, I'm thinking, man, this is tornado country, and, you know, I said, Matt, get your phone out and look at the radar, so he's over there pulling the radar up, and, you know, the little car's all, now, I mean, there's nowhere, where are you going to run, the corn, you can't go anywhere, so, I mean, you might as well just keep driving. So I said, Matt gets the radar pulled up, and I said, man, is it, is it red? And he goes, what does purple mean? <laughs> I said, I think it means it's the end of us, brother. <laughs> so we drove through this torrential downpour, but thankfully the tornadoes and the hail and all the other things 
and the corn went the other way. And we made it here. But my goodness, uh, I miss being with you, but I'm glad we're here today. Let's look at Acts 20 together. Now, I want to set some context for us. It's about 57 A.D. Uh, the ship that's carrying the Apostle Paul on his final journey comes to rest on the shores of a coastal town called Miletus. And so Paul's there, and uh, he calls the elders from the church at Ephesus. It's about 30 miles southwest. So they travel 30 miles to meet with him. Now this, this is a church in Ephesus that Paul spent three years there ministering and, and spreading the word and sharing the gospel and also pouring into these men that were now the leaders of this church that were so near and dear to his heart. And Paul is very specific and strategic in wanting to meet with these men. I mean, this is a very important uh, moment for Paul for several reasons. First of all, as we followed the Apostle Paul over these months through this section of the book of Acts, we've seen how intensely relational he is and how he's learned the importance of relationship through all of the ups and downs that he's uh, faced. And he didn't get to spend long periods of time with many people. And so these people were very uh, important to him. And, you know, Paul, he's not just executing a job description. Paul is, is very much connected to these men and is joined to them in the mission for which they're called to. And so uh, he wants to see his brothers. He wants to see them. And then secondly, Paul wants to say goodbye because he knows that he probably will never return to Ephesus again. And that this is going to be the last time he ever gets to see them. And so he very much wants to have this final moment with them to share these words that uh, he's no doubt thought a lot about. And God's put on his heart. And he, he wants to, to, to give this last sort of encouragement and commission to these men. And so these are heavy words that Paul speaks. And we're going to begin in uh, Acts 20, verse 22. Paul says this to the Ephesian elders, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember 
that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words because they're your words. And Lord, we humble ourselves before their perfection and inerrancy, Lord, and receive them as a gift from you. God, we have them because you intended them for us, not just for Paul and for the people he's speaking to, but for all of mankind. You called us to to know you, to understand you, and to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that this word would be manifested in this place through the power of your Spirit. God, that you have something to say to men and women in this room right now. And Lord, that your voice and your words would be all that we hear. So God, take charge of my voice. And Lord, use this time for your glory. We need ears to hear. We need hearts willing to receive. So will you grant our need that we might be edified and sanctified and built up for your glory in this time. We thank you in advance for what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm only going to deal with the first part. We'll have to come back and finish Acts 20 again next week. But there's just too much here. And it's been killing me to wait two weeks from the last time we were together. So let's jump in. You have your listening guide, your first blanks for today. Let's sort of set the context, okay? The same gospel that will not force you to accept God will force audacious demands upon you if you do. So this gospel, this good news that Paul has devoted his life to will not force you into accepting God. But if you accept God... This gospel will force audacious demands upon you. You see, God seeks to draw us to Him. And the Bible teaches that He does that through His kindness, through His patience, through His long-suffering goodness, His mercy, and through blessing. He, He longs for us to be people who know him and follow him and surrender to him and he's willing to do whatever it takes for that to happen but he will not force himself on us now realize some of you it may be new news to you but most of you understand that there's a a large component of evangelical Christianity today that believes the opposite of what I just said And so we just need to take a second and set our hearts around this truth and reality. You see, the fact that God allows us to run from Him proves that He doesn't force us to love Him. Think about this. The fact that He allows us to run from Him is evidence that He doesn't force us to love Him. Now let me just give you an illustration of that. In Luke chapter 8, for example, the Bible tells the story of Jesus going across uh, the Sea of Gennesaret, going across to the other side where he 
encounters this demon-possessed man, this uh, man who is among the gatherings, and he lives among the tombs, and he's naked, and he's you know, bleeding, and he cuts himself and harms himself and breaks the chains that they put on him to try to control him. And so the, Jesus goes over there. The man comes running up, bows down before him. Jesus casts out all the demons. You know the story. He casts the demons into a herd of pigs, and the pigs then careen off the countryside. And here's what the Bible says. Now, Jesus went over there. He goes over there because there's, a, there's a, a group of cities over there filled with people that are lost and in need of salvation. In Luke chapter 8, verse 37, this is what the Bible says. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got in the boat and left. Amen. There's an illustration of a God who will not force himself on people. He left. He sailed back to the other side. And time and time again, we see Jesus uh, go to a place, leaving a place, not uh, committing many miracles or doing things because of people's unbelief or unwillingness or whatever the case may be. He doesn't force himself. Secondly, God does not force himself, doesn't force us to love him because, well, love can't be forced. I mean, that just makes sense. If God desires an intimate relationship with us, uh, a relationship whereby we receive his love, he loves us and we love him, it's a, a relationship based on love and intimacy, well, that can't be forced. Now, I want you to just consider with me another very logical, simple reality. Think of the places in Scripture where the Bible commands us to love God. Like, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Bible says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Right? Now, what does that tell us? It tells us, Clearly, that loving God must be a choice. Because if God forced us to love Him, why would He say it? He wouldn't say it. There would be no point in saying it because it would already be. The reason He says it is because we have a choice. All of God's commands, although binding upon us, are commands that we each have a choice whether or not we're going to obey or not. Every day, every one of us makes multiple choices, sometimes minute by minute, as to what things we're going to obey and what things we're not going to obey. And you have the freedom to sit down and open up the very Word of God, read it, close it, and walk away and ignore what you just read. You can do that. And so this same gospel that will not force us to accept God, but the flip side is, it will bring these audacious demands upon us if we do. If we do. And that's what I want to talk 
with us about for a few moments. I want us to look and I want us to see how Paul is bringing to bear the unbelievable demands, which are an unbelievable opportunity for us as we follow God, as we receive the gospel. And in receiving the gospel, we we receive all that the gospel is. It's good news. And it's good news that we can have forgiveness of sin. It's good news that we can know God. It's good news that we can fellowship with Him. And it's also good news that He speaks to us and gives us an opportunity to respond to Him in obedience and be a part of His mission and plan and purpose in our life. All of those things are wonderful good news. But we live in a time where it seems so audacious that the gospel would demand that upon us. Even in the baptism videos this morning you heard. I think it was Zoe said, you know, totally surrender to God so that, you know, he's completely in control. I just wasn't ready for that. Well, amen. At least she knew what she was getting into, right? You see, at least she understood the reality of what was at stake. Because there's so many people in so many places that believe you can receive the the gospel and not have any demands placed upon you, which is absolutely false. Those people are deceived. They're deceived. That is not the gospel. So, life in Christ. Life in Christ is going, not knowing. Going, not knowing. That came directly from my journey home last week. (laughs) Going, not knowing. So Paul says in verse 22, And see now I go, bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. See, he goes not knowing. He's moving forward not knowing what awaits him. The Spirit has created this compulsion within Paul. This, this, uh, this necessity to, to follow through, to walk forward, to, to seize the moment and the opportunity that's before him. But even in doing so, he's, he's letting us know that he's going forward, but he doesn't know what awaits him. He doesn't know. That's the story of our life. We're going not knowing. That's the Christian life that we live. That's what we've been called to. Some of your translations say he goes constrained by the Spirit. So he's going as God's leading him, constraining him. Now, this is is par for the course with the Apostle Paul. This is how God works in your life, in my life. This is how he's always worked, and this is how he's always worked in Paul's life. Remember back in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, the, the Lord says to Paul, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told... Uh, what you must do. Wait a minute. Well, wh- what? What, what? What am I going to do? Where do I go? That's not for you to know. You arise and go into the city. I'm giving you the go part, and you got to go not knowing. You don't know the rest of the story. Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit says to the church at Antioch, remember, Now separate from me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. What work? I mean, what's this encompass? What's this about? In other words, you can just read this. You know why you you can just read Acts 13 too and go through and go, well, that's nice. Because your name's not Paul or Barnabas. But if it was, you'd be saying, hey, hold on. I got questions. 
What do you mean separate us for? You know, like, hold, I like it here. I'm comfortable here. I know people here. I'm, I'm in a groove here. Where are we, what are we doing? What's this all about? God is always working with us. Always. In such a way as to keep us in touch with the fact that He's God and we're not. Does God know the information? Well, of course He does. But He doesn't give it. Because that's our life, going not knowing. Then in Acts 16, verse 9. Remember uh, the vision that comes to the Apostle Paul? The Macedonian call? So a man in Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Do you ever just think about this for a second? Paul has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, Come over here and help us. Help you. What, what, what are we talking about? Who are you? Well, I mean, how, how do I find you? How many questions would you have if, if this was your situation? How many things would you go, I need some more clarification? And God's saying, he's saying to Paul, no, step out in obedience. Your life, what I've called you to is to go and not know. That's my life, that's your life. That's what this whole thing is about. And what, here's what happens. When we go, when we take the step of obedience, when we begin to move in the direction that God's moving us, it ignites the fire of transformation in our life. You see? Like the scripture that we read this morning from Romans. Be not conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What did it say? That we may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, how is our mind renewed? How do we prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? By moving forward, by moving in the direction that God's leading us. Not by knowing everything that God's going to do because you can't know that. You won't know that. You'll never know that. You'll never know that. Let me just break some news to some of you this morning. If God didn't tell Paul, he sure ain't going to tell you. He's not going to tell you. Now, here's, here's Paul going to Jerusalem not knowing. He's going and not knowing. Now, why would God do that? What is the point of this? Is God just trying to make things difficult for the sake of difficulty? Is he just trying to be mysterious for the sake of being mysterious? I mean, is, what, does he just love to build anticipation for no reason? Is he withholding information? Well, this is the way I would answer that. God wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we need God and God does not need us. You see, going not knowing is like a, uh, an advanced degree in Godology. It will train your soul to understand 
how much you need God and how zero God needs you and me. Because when you go and don't know, it begins to put you in a situation to receive and understand what God is doing. You begin to learn about Him and understand His ways in, in, in a way that you can't do any other way. See, it forces us into situations where we perceive things. We just do. See, therefore, here's what happens. We live having to take risks. Now, are they risks? Well, that depends on whose perspective we're looking at. From my perspective, it's a risk. From God's perspective, it's, there is no risk. But, but for me and for you, for Paul, it's a risk. We're going and not knowing. We're, we're stepping out. We're walking out on this plank. We don't know what's going to happen and how it's going to go. So there's risk involved in that for us. You see, in the presence of risk in our life is a reminder. What happens when we begin to feel the pressure of risk? We begin, we begin to become much more acutely aware of God. Much more... Uh, sensitive to God, more prayerful, more thoughtful, more, yes, because we feel the pressure of what we perceive to be risk. Now, God never takes a risk, but He likes it when we do. He wants us to. It's important for us. We need it. You see, if you think about it, God is never going and not knowing. That, that, that doesn't exist in his vernacular. He doesn't even know. I mean, he's, he doesn't, he's never experienced that. He can't. You see, God is, is not not knowing because God always knows. He, God's not going because God's already there. But for us, it's different. Risk exists for us because we're not omniscient. And when we don't know what lies ahead, when we don't know all things, then for us, it's risky. And so we're walking not knowing. And we, we sense the pressure of that risk. We're not omnipresent. So when we're going... Well, I mean, we, we haven't been to the future. We don't know what's there, but God's already there. He already knows that. And we're certainly not omnipotent. We're not all-powerful. We, we're clearly not in control. And do you know how we know we're not in control? Because we feel the pressure of risk, don't we? Yes. I think sometimes people wrongly think that somebody like me always knows what he's doing. Well, that would be wrong. I'm going not knowing. Every day of my life is going not knowing. I feel the pressure of risk continually. 
It's on me when I go to sleep. It's on me when I wake up. And here's why. Because I feel the weight of all the things that, that are laid upon me. As I'm going and not knowing. I mean, you, you just have to understand that it's a scary thing to, to go and not know. And the more you do it, the more you understand the principle and how it works. But the further down the road you get, this has just been my experience. Early on in my Christian life, I was going and not knowing. But I knew more than I know now. In other words, I know way more about God now than I knew then. And so it seems to me, looking back, that early on, God called me to go and not know, but He, he told me more than He tells me now. Literally, I was thinking about this all week, and I was thinking about how I literally feel that I'm at a place in my life where it's just go. Just go. Just go. There's no, there's no more information needed. Just go forward. Just go forward. See, ask yourself this question. What am I really in control of? What am I really in control of? And then begin to consider why is it that we live in such a way as if we're in control of certain things in our life that we, we, try, to, we try to work things as, in a, such a way that we can, you know, make the make it work out the way we want it to or prevent something that we don't want from happening, happening. And when you stop and think about how ridiculous that is, that we, we live our life as if we're in control of our health, and yet not a week goes by that somebody in this fellowship doesn't, usually, oftentimes in the blink of an eye, Find out how much they're not in control of their health. That all of that can change in one instant. And that all, all, all the things that we do to try to stave it off or to try to... It, we're not in control. But we live, I believe, with all my heart in a culture that more than any other culture in the history of the world, which is why I'm preaching the message I'm preaching tonight. Because all this is interconnected. That more than any other time in history and no other place like this is just obsessed, obsessed beyond 
anything with control. And how we try to leverage fear into just every mundane situation in our daily lives. You turn the TV on. And, you know, it's not just that you can't get the news. You can't even get the weather. I mean, the weather is out of control. And so, the, you know, the, 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 it's almost like the scary movie soundtrack is playing in the background, you know. And then it's, you know, a giant snowstorm is taking over New York State. That's new. You know, all the people there are on lockdown and everything. I I feel like going, hold on one second. If you live in New York and this is a surprise to you, you're a moron. (laughs) Like it's been doing this forever. I can remember being a kid watching the Buffalo Bills try to play football, running through the snow. Like, I mean, come on. A snowstorm in New York State. That shouldn't be scaring anybody in New York State. I'm just saying. I don't need dramatic music telling me that the interstate is covered with ice in Colorado. What have we become? Really? You live in the mountains, folks. You know, look and they show you pictures. Look at the truck slid off the road. Well, that's what they do when they drive on ice. Like, no one's surprised by that. It's not just them, y'all. Have you watched the local weather lately? The other morning, I watched, it must have been for five minutes, the weatherman go on and on and on in the morning about, well, he's got charts and graphs, and it's a, it's a heat advisory. You need to drink plenty of, of water, and it's, it's don't go outside between these hours, and if you do, make sure you're in the shade. I'm going, are you kidding me? I feel like running into the bedroom going, Honey, guess what? It's hot! Did you know that? Like, when did that happen? Uh, I think it was that day or the day after that. The, they were, you know, news bulletin, you know, alert. The, one of the elementary schools in Biloxi is closed down. All the kids have been sent home. The AC quit. I'm like, Dadgum, I never had AC. Not one time. I never went to school with air conditioning. We just sat there, sweat pouring off us like, do your math. Okay, yes, ma'am. I mean, everything's dramatic. And, you know, it, but you know what it is? It's trying to control. Like, just you don't go outside and you won't get hot. Don't you go to New York and you won't get in snow. Don't, 
drive on ice so you might slide off the road. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Just show me the map and shut up. That's all I want to see. But so oftentimes, here's what happens. People aren't going. And, and if you dig down into why they're not going, it's because they want to know. You see, if I know, I'll go. That's the mantra of today in the church. If I know, then I'll go. And if you got to know before you go, you're never going with God. You're just not. Why is knowing so important to us? Why do we feel like we just have to know? I think it's because it's exposing a fundamental problem within our hearts. We have a serious value problem. We're not affixing value where value needs to be affixed. Our need to know and our need to control is born out of a out-of-whack, unhealthy valuation of comfort and security. And I think what these first few verses in this section teach us is in just the plainest, simplest way you could ever understand how God works and how you need to work if you want to follow Him. And it will make all of the Scriptures make sense to you if you understand this. And apart from this, you'll be baffled and confused and won't understand what the Bible's teaching you in any, any way, shape, or form. We could, we could sum this principle up this way. God gives us only enough information to take the next step in order to teach us what it is to walk by faith. You see, God... God's work in you is not done at conversion, at salvation. It begins there. And all of the work that He desires to do in you, all the work of sanctification, centers around this issue of faith, which we learned in exhaustion as we studied verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. It's a faith journey. It's a faith issue. It's all about faith. What God wants to accomplish in you and through you is built upon, dependent upon, relegated in, interconnected, intertwined in your faith. And so God only gives you the information that you need to take the next step. He gives you that. But you've got to learn to walk by faith if you're going to follow God. This is why as we begin to do this, our desperation for God increases as our uncertainty increases. 
And so when we feel in control and life is good and normal, we don't pay God any attention whatsoever. But when it all starts to cave in around us, we are tuned in, right? Yes. And so it only makes sense that it would be that way. And what he does is he, he delights in positioning us, orchestrating events in our life, positioning us so that we find ourselves in a situation where we're bound by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem just like Paul. Just like Paul. Putting us in a situation where we have to learn to depend on Him. Now have you come to terms with this? Because God knows that it's easy for us to sit here this morning and intellectually agree with this reality. So he doesn't leave it there. He wants to nail it deep into us. And so he tells us in the very next verse, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Hmm. You see, Paul wasn't completely void of information, was he? No. Neither are you. Neither am I. But what information does God give? Chains and tribulations await you? That's the morsel of information you're going to give me, God? Of all the things you could have told me. Wouldn't it be more sensible if God would have said, Now, Paul, you're going not knowing, but here's the thing. Many people are going to give their life to Christ because of your words. Or many successes await you. In other words, why not conceal the fact that there's going to be tribulation and chains and just let that spring up on him? Wouldn't that be, I mean, if, if you were trying to motivate somebody, this is not the way you would do that. I thought of all the hilarious things that would happen if we sort of used this as parenting principle. <laughs> it would be horrible. Our kids would be like, you know, ah, you know, and they'd never be able to do anything. No, because we have to tell them, no, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And they finally go, okay, it's going to be okay. And then she comes in with the big needle, ah, you know, like, see. And they're like, I thought it was going to be okay. Well, I, I might have lied a little bit, right? God doesn't say that. He goes, now go in, and there's big needles waiting for you in there. Big, juicy ones. And a mean-looking nurse. Now get on in there. Man, you'd say you're a bad parent. Which would make us all liars, because we just sang, you are good, you are good. Oh, you are good. I'm just thinking the whole time, you're good. I'm just getting shots. Yeah.
So, Paul, why does God do this? Why, why, why did Paul give this information to Paul? It's not, it's not just some random occurrence. It's, it's a principle we see laid out in Scripture where God wants to continually reorient His people. The people that He's dealing with, the people that He's working with, the people that are following. He wants to reorient them. To, to know and understand the reality of what it means to follow him. Because remember, the whole journey began not with, hey, come and get your sins forgiven. That's not how it started. It didn't come with, hey, come and I'll always be with you. That's not how it started. It started with, follow me. Remember that? That's where it started. That's where it is. And that's where it's always going to be. And God is not withholding any information about what that's going to be like. He wants you to know up front. I'm not going to force you. But if you come in, here's what I require of you. Now, you don't have to come in. But if you do, I don't want you to be surprised by what's going to happen. Because I really am a good father. And the way God parents is he says, now look, here's the situation. You have a virus that's run amok in your veins. And you're going to die. But I want to send you in that room where there's going to be a needle filled with an antidote that's going to kill the virus that's within you. That will enable you to be able to live forever the way I intended for you to live. But in order for that to happen, I want you to understand that you're going to follow me into this room and there's going to be some unpleasant things that happen in there. But they're going to be for your good. They're going to be for my glory. They're going to be according to my plan and purpose. And I'm going to go in there with you. And I'll hold your hand while it happens. But it's going to happen. And if you think you can follow me and not come in here, you're wrong. Because if you don't come in here and get the shot, you will die. And so contrary to what anybody's trying to tell you, all the people sitting in church that are in the waiting room and won't go in and get the shot are going to die. They're going to die because they're not following him. He wants you to know this. He wants you to understand this. So he tells Paul, what, what did he say in Luke chapter 9? Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, it's going to be awesome. Man, we're going to have great times together. You're going to see new highs that you never thought you'd see. You're going to experience things. He didn't say that. He said, you're going to have to deny yourself because yourself doesn't want to get a shot. Yourself doesn't want to go in there. Yourself wants to stay in the waiting room and sit around and do nothing. That's what yourself wants to do. But he said, no, that's not how this works. If you are going to follow me, here's the deal. You got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's how it works. There's no other way. And then in Luke 14, he said this, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot 
be my disciple. There it is right there. Cannot. And then he says, well, who would set out to build something and not count the cost to build it, therefore they couldn't finish it? There it is, right there. So what does that mean? It means going not knowing must be your life. Because if it's not your life, you're not in Christ. Because that is the way this works. Charles Spurgeon said this way. He said, there are no crown bearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. God is continually, every minute of every day in the life of his children, he's attempting to keep us in touch with this reality. That in our flesh, in ourselves, we, we crave and long for things outside of Him. And if you think God just works on you in specific little bursts of time, I mean, listen, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but folks, you're a full-time job. It's a full-time job. I am a full-time job. God's got to work with me every single day. Every, there's not a, an, a minute that goes by. He, he, if he takes his eyes off of me, I'm going to crash and burn. I have no hope. No hope. I'm a full-time job. And so what does he do? He's continually working as we're craving and longing for things outside of him. And he's restraining us and redirecting us and teaching us. The Christian life is a continual exercise in dependence upon God. Continual. Continual. It's not the, it's not the opening ceremony. It is the entire thing. An exercise in dependence upon God. I wonder sometimes what would happen if all the churches preached the gospel the way the gospel is given to us. Well, what would happen in so many places if somebody stood up and said, hey, suffering is a prerequisite to being glorified. It, it would be shock and horror and panic to so many. Not you, but to a lot of people it would be. They think, what are you talking about? The Bible. You see, if you, if you open the Bible and actually read the Bible, you find out there's a fundamental problem with humanity, and that problem is sin. That's the problem. And one of the most dangerous, destructive sins to our soul, one of the things that will, will embed and put roots in and devastate us more than anything else, is the idolatry 
of comfort and control. It is unbelievably destructive and unbelievably difficult to root out of your life when it's been raining there for a long time. And it's just another way for us to organize our life. I mean, comfort and control is just us organizing our life so that we position ourselves as if we're God. That's all it is. You try to, you try to cloak it in little phrases like it's, uh, you, you, some people call it, they'll, they'll misuse the word wisdom. Or they'll say that it's, well, you know, it's just being uh, uh, responsible. Or it's just being diligent. Or it's just being, hmm? No, it's being idolatrous. You can smile. It's okay. I love you. You look like I just like I'm going to give you a shot when you, everyone goes out. We're going to give you shots. Got all the nurses waiting out there. It's the truth. It's just an attempt for us to be God in our lives. I mean, the truth is, the natural man is going to avoid at all costs, in any way we can. Going into any hardship, we're going to always want to take the easy way. I didn't run up to Pastor Matt and say, guess what? Forget the planes. Let's just drive across seven states through a tornado. It'll be fun. No, I tried the easy way. That didn't work. And so then I ended up going, I mean, that's what we do. But when it carries over into our spiritual lives. We may not be aware of the fact that you can hear every sermon I preach, but let me tell you something, your flesh never stops preaching. 24 hours a day, preach, preach, preach. Your flesh is preaching to you. And it's trying to convince you you, you can't do anything radical. You can't do anything hard. You can't do anything that's going to make a difference. You can't do that. It's reminding you of all the ways it's going to be disruptive to your life. All the things it's going to cost you. All the ways it's going to mess things up. It's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to do this. And your flesh is a, is a wizard at telling you all the contingencies of all the negative uh, consequences of following God with reckless abandon. No, no, no. You can't do that. And really, it's kind of like kind of like watching the weather your flesh see I, I watch that goofball weatherman and I'm thinking that's that you know I don't even know his name I call him the flesh he's the flesh that's what my flesh says to me <gasps> don't don't do that it's gonna get you it's gonna get hot it's gonna don't go out there it's gonna be cold don't go over there it's gonna and there's the flesh up there pointing going see over here you shouldn't do that don't do that this is dang this is bad nope that's gonna make you uncomfortable don't do that my flesh even plays the same music behind it as it's telling me that. I mean, you can't do anything radical. I mean, you... No. I mean, there's some of you in this room. Oh, I mean, you can't quit your job and go to seminary. You can't do that. And you got a whole list of reasons why. But... Yet somehow, you have this burning desire 
inside of you to go to Bible college. You feel God calling you in the ministry, but you have a million reasons why you're not moving. Because you don't know, and you're not going because you don't know. Isn't it true? Yeah. You don't, you don't go and participate in God's global mission? Why? you got a list of reasons. But you feel compelled, and you, you, you realize that there's all these things that God's called us to, but there's too many questions you don't have answers for. You can't start a ministry. You got a whole list of reasons why it won't work. You can't do it. You don't have the money. You don't have the experience. You don't have this. You don't have that. The flesh man's just pointing to the screen, showing you all the reasons why you can't do it. But see, for most of most of you here today, going not knowing is is something totally different. It's not going to seminary or becoming a missionary or starting a ministry. You know what going not knowing is for most of the people in this room? It's finally having the courage to literally, actually walk into your D group and be transparent. Stop pretending to be something you're not. Stop acting like you got it together. Stop acting like, but actually walk in and look into the face of some men or women and say, here's the real story. This is what's really going on in my life. This is what is really I'm afraid of and what I deal with and what I struggle with. And That's what God's calling you to do. That's going not knowing. For some of you, it's just finally getting out of your comfort zone and doing something difficult for the kingdom of God. It's actually saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to serve. But I'm not going to try to find the easiest way to serve or the most, you know, the simplest way. But I'm going to find the most sacrificial way for me to serve in the kingdom of God. That's going not knowing. I'm going to do something that my flesh is telling me I ought not do. Because why? Because I feel bound in my spirit that I need to serve. Don't you understand? How do you have this, this unction inside of you saying you need to serve? Every one of you in the room knows right now who I'm talking to. And why? Did I put that there? How did it get there? The spirit of God's telling you to go and you won't go because you don't know. Some of you need to be more generous, but you won't. And you think, why, do I, why am I struggling with this? I don't know, because I haven't been talking to you about money. You have a money problem, and the Spirit of God is constraining you to go, but you don't know, so you won't go. You know what the, the, the flesh man wants you to think? Oh, if I knew where to go, I'd go. That is a lie. That's a lie. You know that's a lie. You know where to go. You know where your Jerusalem is right now. I know you don't know. 
You're never going to know. That's God's design. What, what does it look like for you to be bound in the Spirit and go? He gives you just enough information to take the next step. See, if you keep reading, what you're going to find is Paul's going to go into great detail about how it's his race, it's his ministry. See, it's not your race, it's not your ministry. You have your own race, your own ministry. I dealt with that two weeks ago. Paul's called to Paul's thing. You're called to your thing. I'm called to my thing. But are you, are you going in your thing? Not my thing, your thing. It's your responsibility. Paul said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. You know why? Because he told them. This morning, I was on my face before God in my office praying for you. And here's, here's how my prayer ended. I imagined the end of this sermon. And I said, God, I'm washing my hands. Their blood's not on my hands. If they don't go, I told them. I told them. I told them to go. It's your responsibility. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I could literally put this verse in every sermon I preach. This is how one should regard us, the Apostle Paul says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Because it's required of servants and stewards that they be found faithful. Can I, can I just tell you something? Words like success or failure, those are master words. It's required of you to be found faithful. You should not have in your vocabulary success or failure because you have no right. The master determines success or failure. The steward is not responsible for everything. The steward is only responsible for that which the master put in his possession, in his charge, in his care. And whether or not you're successful or you fail is not up to you. It's up to the master. When the master returns, the master decides whether it's success or failure. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to be found faithful in going not knowing. In running our race, your race, my race. That I run my race, you run yours. I go and not know. And you go and not know. And we may not be going the same place. We're just going in the same direction. Lastly, I just thought about the state of so many people. Gosh. Sitting in the waiting room, man. 
savage wolves are coming in. What ought to be our greatest fears should be living an under-challenged life in the kingdom of God or being terminally bored as a Christian. Dear God, don't let it be so. Don't let the master come back and find us sitting in the waiting room reading some tired magazine passing time. Because what's not going to suffice in that moment is saying, but God, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Let's stand and bow our heads.